us tonight. I'd like to start off with a few questions uh, for you guys to think about as we um, look at God's Word, or as we prepare to look at God's Word tonight. The first question is, have you ever sinned in such a way that you felt so guilty it was unbearable? Have you ever sinned in such a way that you felt that there was no fixing this sin? Have you ever sinned in such a way that you felt you would never be able to stop falling back into this sin? Have you ever sinned in such a way that you felt like you could not really be saved? Have you ever sinned in such a way that you felt that God could no longer use you to fulfill his purposes? Well, tonight I'd like to uh, point you guys to a passage of scripture that I believe gives us hope. If you have ever felt this way or are feeling this way even now, I'd like to point us to a scripture that brings those that have felt this way, have felt hopeless in the midst of sin, hope for the future. So if you'd turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 24, 2 Samuel chapter 24, and I apologize, I don't have a handout uh, for you tonight, so you'll have to turn in your Bibles to follow along. Again, it's 2 Samuel 24. Just to give you a little bit of background on this text, we're looking at an example of David or the story of David. And this is, this is kind of maybe in the middle of his reign as king or maybe towards the end of his uh, reign as king over Israel. And I'm, for the sake of time tonight, I'm not going to read through this whole story. I'm going to be going through it verse by verse. But I'm not going to read uh, the whole story for us right off in the beginning um, just for the sake of time. So I'll present my theme to you uh, for tonight as we begin. The theme uh, that we find in this passage is, as Christians, we can take hope in the midst of sin that God is at work. Again, that's as Christians, we can take hope in the midst of sin that God is at work. And the question that I believe this passage uh, answers is, how is God at work in our sin? And tonight I present to you that we'll have three specific ways that we can see God at work. So if you turn uh, with me to 2 Samuel uh, chapter 24, uh, we'll start off at verse 1. And verse 1 uh, basically just gives us a little bit of, um, or verse 1 gives us a setting uh, for the reason in which this chapter takes place. Or in other words, uh, what was the cause of the events that would take place in chapter 24? So if you look with me at verse 1, it says, Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. So we see here that God was angry at Israel, not for the first time. All right? So God's anger burned toward Israel. And we may ask, um, why did God's anger burn towards Israel? What was the reason for it? My answer to that is, I don't believe it's mentioned. I don't think we can fully know what the reason is why God's anger was kindled against Israel. And I think we do well not to speculate over this point. Why was God angry? I don't think we uh, do well to speculate because since the author didn't put it forth for us, I don't think he's trying to make this a major point or trying to get us to um, know what it truly is. But there is several things that we should point out um, for why God or 
with the point that God was angry. So the first point is, we do know that this was not the first time that Israel had sinned against God. And we get this from the word again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So this again shows us that Israel was in a state of unrepentant sin. They were in continuous unrepentant sin and would not stop disobeying God. Another point that we can uh, view in God being angry is that it says that, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. This is talking about the collective sin of Israel. So it's not just talking about an individual, but uh, Israel as a whole. And as we look at our story, I said that this was a story of David. Just a point I'd like to point out is that David was also included in Israel. He was included in this sin. Even though it doesn't say Israel and David, David is their king, he's their ruler, he's their shepherd. So I think we do well to point out that David was also included in this reference to Israel. If you look with me at verse 1 again, I'd like to address the second half of the verse. It says, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go number Israel and Judah. So when it says he incited David, it's talking about God incited David. So this is in direct connection with God's anger. So the first part of the verse said that, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and then the result of that, what God did next was that he incited David. And I'd like to just point out that as we continue to understand what is going on between God and David, it's important to remember and understand that God was not taking someone who was innocent, in our, in our text it's David, he wasn't taking someone that was innocent and making them uh, do something or making them guilty or making them commit wrong. But, as I have already addressed, that David was a part of Israel. He was guilty of whatever sin uh, they were committing, even if it was just him not pointing them back to the Lord to follow his commands. So God's not taking someone innocent and making uh, them commit wrong. So to address this verse, I think all of us may ask, if we've never studied this text before or haven't thought too uh, in-depth about it, we may ask the question that in this context, what does the word incite mean or incited mean? Does it mean simply that God allowed David to sin or that he allowed him to do this census? Does it mean that God forced or instilled in David this sin? Does it mean that God directs situations and events that would make it easier for David to sin? Well, I'd like us to uh, just think about the word in the original text uh, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, or most of it was. And in the, this Hebrew word uh, for insight, as I studied and as I looked at several of the occurrences found in the Old Testament, often this word is also, um, the meaning for it is often, um, another way of saying it would be to instigate, uh, to stimulate, or to urge. All right, so back in the Hebrew, this word incited often meant instigate, stimulate, or to urge. So we can see uh, then from this that God did not force David to number the people. He did not instill in David. Uh, instill is different than incite, so God did not place uh, this sin in David. Um, he did not force him to do it. 
But at the same time, I would say that God seems to be, and I think we would all say that God seems to be doing something here. He seems to be involved. Um, so how is he? I would say that it's even more than um, allowing or permitting. So this word incite seems to be giving us a little bit more than just saying that God allowed David to sin or God permitted. It seems like it's a little bit more than this, but as we read, we just read, and he incited David against them. The text doesn't give us any more answers uh, to this question. What does incite mean? So I think ultimately... Uh, we cannot fully understand how God was specifically at work. But for one thing, we can be fully assured that God did not sin in this. As I said already, he didn't instill or force David to sin. But I think we can see from, the other, from other scriptures uh, that God is good. He is perfect, he is holy, and he does not sin. Um, so I think we can be fully assured that God was not at sin, uh, was not doing sin, in this specific occasion. So I'd like you guys to kind of hold on uh, just for a moment. I am going to try and make this point a little bit clearer, the incited part, but we need to look at David's action uh, in this sin first. Um, so just in a little bit, I'm going to come back to God's part in it, and we're going to look at an illustration from the scriptures that I hope uh, will make it a little bit more clear. But first, let's move back to our text, uh, and I'd like to look at verse 1 again and look at David's part in this sin. So verse 1 again says, Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. So David will command for a census to take place with the whole nation. It says, David, uh, it says that David said, Go number Israel and Judah. So he is responsible for saying this. He's responsible for this action. If you don't know what a censuses or what it means by numbering uh, Israel or Judah. Simply what this means is that someone would go out and count or find out how many people were in a certain nation, were in a certain country, um, or in a certain land. So in this case, it seems to be only man, men, as we'll see uh, in verse 9, it, it gives the results in men. It says 800,000 valiant men. So, and then it says, and the men of Judah were 500,000. So this census in particular seems to be only counting the men of Israel, um, but a census usually would be numbering all the people. So let's move on in our text, looking at how David was uh, at work, how he was responsible for this sin. If we move on to verse 2, we see that David commands Joab to conduct the census. In verse 2 it says, so the king said to Joab, the commander of the army, who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. So, as I've already mentioned, David uh, is sinning when he conducts this census. But even here, we do not, uh, the text does not make us know uh, that this was actually sin. Only in verse 10, and I'll move to that um, I'll skip forward to that just to show that this census was truly sin. If you look at verse 10, it says, But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. So as I said, our text in the beginning doesn't tell us that 
uh, this specific census was a sin, but later on in the chapter, as we'll see uh, later, and as I've just read, uh, David truly did repent of this sin. He uh, considered it as sin. Um, but uh, a question that might arise in our minds, so I keep saying that David's uh, this census was a sin. One of the questions that might come up in our minds is, why was it a sin? Why was it uh, a sin for David to number Israel and Judah? Well, again, with this question, I would say that the text does not answer it. It doesn't say why this census was a sin. But if we look at um, the scriptures, we can see in the Old Testament, Moses. Moses twice was commanded by God to conduct a census of the people of Israel. So I would say that census or censuses or numbering of the people were not sin in and of themselves. All right, God actually commanded Moses to do this, and God would not command him to do this if this was sin. All right, so there must have been the motive behind it or maybe the way that it was conducted. So, as I've already said, to our dismay, the scriptures doesn't say why this census was a sin, um, but we can surely speculate. I don't want to take too much time to speculate, but we can possibly speculate that um, possibly it was David's motive for conducting the census. It might have been pride in the fact that uh, he was thinking about his kingdom. He wanted to see how big it was, how large it has grown since he has been king. Or maybe another motive for doing this census may have been out of a lack of trust in God. Maybe he was thinking, I need to have more confidence in my army, so I need to know how many I have uh, so that I can have confidence going into battle. He wasn't trusting God, but he was trusting in the number of his people. So those are just speculations. The text does not tell us. Um, So I think that, as I've said before with another point, I don't think we do well to dwell on this point, to speculate about it, um, or even to make a full point about it, because the author is not focusing on it. So all we need to know, so we can speculate, but I think the main thing the author wants us to know going forward is that David commanded a census, and in so doing, he sinned. So let's move on in our text. If you look with me at verse 3, it says, But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing. So Joab, Joab is the commander of David's army, and uh, David has him as the, the leader of this census. He's commanding him to carry it out, to fulfill it. And in so doing, when David goes to him and tells him this, it seems as if Joab either thinks this thing is a, a worthless thing to do, something that's pointless, he doesn't see the point in it, or he sees it as a foolish thing to do, something that's sinful. He says, why does my Lord the King delight in this thing? But as we see in verse 4, David's command for the census is is followed. Even though Joab uh, has uh, some questions about it, it says in verse 4, but the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. So as I said, even though Joab questions it, David's word prevails. His word triumphs over him, and they do follow through with this census. And if you look with me at verse 5, it actually tells us this, the, the main cities um, that they went to in carrying out this census. 
Starting in verse 5, it says, They crossed the Jordan and began from Er, and from the city that is in the middle of the valley, toward Gad and on to Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites. And they came to Dan, and from Dan they went around to Sidon, and came to the fortress of Tyre, and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. And they went out to the Negeb of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem, and at the end of nine months and 20 days. So we see this census. It was a pretty long, um, long thing to carry out. David commands this census, and it takes close to 10 months uh, for it to finally be fulfilled. And then in verse 9, we see the results. In verse 9, it says, And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king in Israel. There were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. So we get the results. The census is fully carried out. David's command is followed by his men, and the census is carried out. So with all that said, I said we'd come back to God's part in all of this. We, we have two people responsible at this point, or uh, at work in this situation. We have God. As I've said the text says God incited David. And then, as we have just seen, the text says that God said, go, or David said, go number Israel and Judah. So we see both God's part and David's part. And now may I ask the question uh, that may arise, who is responsible for this action? Or who is responsible for this sin in having the census of Israel? Is it God? As we already saw, God incites David to take the census for the reason that he was angry with Israel. So God had a part in the situation. Or is it David? As we already saw, David is the one who actually commands the census. He says the very words. He makes sure those words are followed and then is given the results of the census. Or is it Satan? And I say that because I'd like you to turn to 1 Chronicles 21. If you could turn with me to 1 Chronicles 21, another component is added uh, to this equation, and that is Satan. So 1 Chronicles 21, and we'll be looking uh, right at verse 1. This passage of 1 Chronicles uh, 21 is actually a parallel passage to our text for tonight, 2 Samuel 24. Just like uh, we know in the Gospels, there are many parallel passages of what happened in Jesus' life. Maybe in Matthew, there's the same event is recorded in Mark, uh, just by a different author, maybe through a different viewpoint. And that's uh, how this passage of 1 Chronicles 21 is parallel to our passage for tonight. So if you look right at verse 1 uh, with me, it says, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So this next component of Satan, I'm going to bring to uh, the plate, hopefully not to dwell on it. I don't want to look into exactly Satan's part uh, to an extent, but I'm hoping it helps us better understand how God was at work in this situation, in this census that David commanded. So this passage attributes David's sin to Satan. God is not even mentioned concerning the sin. So 
My question is, do we have a contradiction? Many would say, or many would uh, question, is this a contradiction in the Scripture? Does one account, say the Second Samuel account, does it claim that only God was at work, and then this parallel passage, 1 Chronicles 21, does this claim that only Satan was at work? My answer to that is I do not believe so. I believe that all three, God, Satan, and David, um, are at work, um, or in a sense just um, yeah, at work in this action or in this situation of the census taking place. And I believe this because I believe that God, in the sense that he reigns sovereign over all things. So I think God's involved in the census and that he reigns sovereign over all things and he allowed and permitted this sin. And he used it to punish Israel for a sin that caused him to be angry towards them. And then I'd say Satan. Satan is at work in that he was against Israel. He was seeking to cause destruction and trouble for God's people. So he influenced David to sin in this way. And then David, even though he was in a sense influenced by God and Satan, he was still fully uh, responsible for this sin. They did not force him. God and Satan did not force him to uh, participate in this sin. So he takes full responsibility for this action. So in, so in all, all three had a part in the census, but David was at fault of the sin. One last thing I'd like to bring to your attention with this, uh, looking at God inciting David, is I'd like us to turn to Job. The story of Job, if you could turn with me to Job, I believe that this uh, story will really help kind of clear up things um, and illustrate the relationship between God, Satan, and man. So if you turn with me to Job chapter 1. And again, as I said, I'd like us to turn uh, here because I believe it's a good illustration of the relationship between God, Satan, and man. So I'm going to start at chapter 1 and start at verse 6. So if you look there with me, I'll read verses 6 through 12 and pause and then uh, pick up in chapter 2. So verse 6 says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? And there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him? in his house and all that he has on every side. You have blessed the work of his hand, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So a few points I'd like to make uh, about this text is that Um, first off, we see here that God's directing Satan's attention to Job. So that's real interesting. God is actually directing Satan's attention to Job, and he speaks of his character. And Satan questions if this was not just because God blessed Job. 
So God decides he gives or allows Satan uh, to make Job suffer. So here we see that God does, just, does more than just allowing or permitting uh, Satan, um, but he actually somewhat instigates Satan by initiating the situation. And then, I'm not going to read these verses, but in verses tw- 13 through 22, we actually see Job suffering. We see how he loses his oxen and servants, his sheep and shepherds, his camels, and all of his children. So Satan carries out with this suffering. And then our story picks up, if you look back with me at chapter 2, chapter 2, verse, verses 1 through 7, give us um, an added situation. It says in verse 1, Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So here we see in chapter 2 a similar situation. We see that, but this, well, the difference is this time uh, God gives permission for Satan to actually stretch out his hand against Job's body, but he was to spare his life. So we see God's allowance and even initiating the situation with Satan here again. We see Satan has power, but only power that is allowed by God. In Job, we see uh, with looking at man, we see that Job was not forced. The situation made it very possible for him to sin because of this suffering, but he chose not to sin. So what does Job chapters 1 through 2 gotta, got to do with our passage of 2 Samuel chapter 24? I believe we can learn um, some just generalities or principles about how God works in general, and then, in a sense, we can uh, possibly apply them to our text. So one, the first principle we can learn is that God can and will sometimes initiate a situation in which we will be tempted to sin. Secondly, God can and will sometimes allow or permit us to sin. Thirdly, God can and will sometimes allow or permit Satan to tempt us. Fourthly, God is in control of Satan. And fifth, we will be tempted to sin. So those are several principles that we can learn about how God works. So in using Job to help us understand, we can... I I don't think that we can fully take those principles that we learn about how God works, how Satan works, how man works, and then just take them and directly apply them to our passage. I don't think we can fully do that. But in a sense, we can realize how God works, how maybe the possibilities of how God might have worked in this situation with David in inciting him. So what can we conclude about how God was at work in David's sin? 
How, what can we cl- conclude concerning God's inciting, Satan's inciting, and David's sinning? First, that God and Satan were somehow both at work. God in the way that he was allowing and even helping the situation to occur. Satan in, in the sense that he was seeking David to sin. The author of Samuel does not give specifics on what exactly it looked like, unlike Job. So I think that we can certainly somewhat understand it, but it remains a mystery of how God was truly at work, how Satan was truly at work. And then lastly, we can conclude that David, in that he was responsible or he was at work in that he committed the actual sin, uh, but was not forced to do so. So we get our first point. I said we'd have three points. Our first point uh, that we learn from this text is that God oversees our sin. And I'll promise you that uh, the next two points will not be as long to develop, but uh, this first one was a little bit more of a deeper or more difficult um, point to understand. So the first point is uh, that God oversees our sin. And some application. How does this text apply to our lives? The first way is that we should be warned that if we continue in unrepentant sin, God may seek to bring judgment on us or bring about repentance as he did with Israel and David. So I think we need to be warned that if we continue in our sin, uh, God truly can and sometimes he will work. Secondly, how this passage applies to our lives is that I believe that it can bring comfort to us. And I believe it can bring comfort in the way that we know that God is still at work in our sin. He is in no way sinning, but he's overseeing uh, our sin to fulfill his purposes. And it's even a comfort that we're not alone in our sin. God knows when we sin, and he is at work in it. Third, a third application is that God sovereignly uses human decisions and sins for his purposes. I'd like to reference Genesis 50:20 as it says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And that was Joseph speaking in that text. He, if you know the story of Joseph, or to remind you of the story of Joseph, in Joseph he is sold by his brothers uh, into slavery in Egypt, and uh, eventually he becomes uh, the governor or the leader um, under Pharaoh, and he helps them get out of a very um, distressing situation of a famine. So this is Joseph talking about how God brought about good from evil. A fourth application is, may we be aware of Satan's activity, but not give him more credit than he deserves. God is above Satan, and Satan can only do what God allows him to do. And then a last application of this point is may we realize that we are susceptible and responsible for our sin. So may we realize that we uh, truly will sin and are responsible for it. So let's go back to our narrative. So if you could turn back with me, I believe you're in Job. If you could turn back with me to 2 Samuel chapter 24, we'll be staying uh, there for the remainder of the night. And we'll be starting or we'll be looking at verse 10 to start. So 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 10. And as we've seen, David, he did sin by com- commanding a census to be taken, and God and Satan were at work. So that's what we've seen now, and we see that the census truly was completed, 
and that the results were 800,000 for Israel and 500,000 for Judah. So that's kind of what we've talked about so far. But now, as we look back at verse 10 of 2 Samuel chapter 24, um, we see that after this number is given to David, eventually he realizes he sins. In verse 10 it says, But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. So somehow, I don't know how it was brought to David's attention, or if somehow he stopped suppressing this sin, um, he began to feel guilty about his sin after this census was taken, had taken place. Then we see that David takes the proper response of repentance. In verse, 10, in verse 10 again it says, But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the inequity of your servant for I have done very foolishly. So we see that David has the proper response. After he sins, he repents and confesses this sin to God. In no way can he take away his sin. He realizes that God is the only one that can take away um, his inequity or his sin. He realizes that he cannot. So he asks God uh, to take it away. Then we see in verses 11 through 12, we see the prophet Gad brings God's options for punishment to David. It says in verses 11 through 12, And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So God offers three options, and David will have the choice of choice of one of them. So Gad presents the options in verse 13. If you look with me at verse 13, it says, So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. So we have the three options. We have either famine we have fleeing from his enemies, or we have pestilence, or in other words, disease. So these are the three options, and uh, to us, we may think this seems a little unequal. It says three years of famine, it says three months of uh, fleeing from your enemies, and then it says three days of pestilence. But when we really think about it, famine, we th- when we think about the punishment of famine, it would take quite a long while um, as we see in years, uh, for people to really start to die off, for the effects of the famine to affect the people. They would be able to store up um, food, be able to store up um, resources for a little bit, and then it would start to run out because of the famine. So that's why uh, the famine is for three years. And then the enemies, it might take a while for um, them to gather up their armies, to uh, fight in battle. That is why Um, it says three months of fleeing from your enemies. And then pestilence, that could happen instantaneous depending on the disease. So really, these punishments are not unequal in their time. Um, And then as we'll see, David does not just try and choose uh, the easy option. So all of these are, in a sense, uh, equal. If you look with me at verses 14 through 15, it says, Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. 
but let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord set a pe- sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the pointed time. So we see here that famine uh, would have included dealing with, or to explain why it says um, that David chose the the punishment that would put him in the hands of God. The reason that famine would have is because they would have to gather resources, uh, possibly from other nations. When their nation started to run out of resources, they may have went to other nations and uh, had to ask them. So they were still in the hands of man there. And for enemies, um, you're fully at the, at the mercy of human hands. But for pestilence, uh, pestilence or disease is directed uh, by God. So he truly was trying to fall into the hands of God for this punishment. Then in verses 15, in verse 15 it says, So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. So the disease sent by God wipes out 70,000 men. Surely this would be punishment for David in the sense that these are his people. He is a shepherd over them. And when the people start dying off, that certainly, and as we'll see in a little bit from a verse or from the next couple verses, that this truly did distress David. So it's not like God was just only punishing uh, other people, the people of Israel, but David was also included in that these were his people. This would certainly have been um, very... Uh, this would certainly make him very upset and distressed. So we get our second point. Our second point that we can learn about God is God fulfills his purposes through our sin. Again, the second point is God fulfills his purposes through our sin and how this applies to our life. What the application is, is we can see from these verses that God works through sin for his purposes as I've already mentioned. He used David's sin to punish both David and the sinful Israelites. So we see that God, in working in David's sin, he fulfilled his purpose in that he punished Israel and David for their sin. I believe another application that we can get from this uh, point is that comfort, or that we can get comfort that we know that God finishes and has a purpose. He finishes his purpose. It's not like he, um, in a sense, works and it's not like, in a sense, he works and then stops and does not have any purpose for what he does, but we can take comfort in the fact that God has a purpose and he uh, surely completes it. Another application is, may we see how David conducted himself after he repented. He accepted the punishment, realizing his sin may lead to punishment. And also may we learn from David's example in how he viewed God after sin. He saw him still as a merciful God. May we do the same. Now on to our last point. As we've seen, God got angry at Israel because of their sin. He seems to be working behind the scenes of sin and even seems to be allowing for it to happen. We see a God who punishes those who do sin. So should we say that God is not good? No, I'd say that God is a just God. God is a just God in that he fulfills the punishment uh, for those that commit sin. So while being a just God, he is also a merciful God. And we'll see this in the rest of the text. If you look with me at verse 16, 
we see that the Lord stops the punishment before it was completed. In verse 16, it says, And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna. So 70,000 may seem like a whole lot to us, but we must realize that God could have wiped them all out. Since I said Israel, or as the text said, Israel had sinned, God could have certainly chosen just to wipe them all out as their punishment. But we see that he is merciful in how he does not punish fully how they deserve. And to look at the rest of our passage, verses 17 through 25, I'm going to read those and just make several points about them. But here we see that God... uh, God then accepts David's sacrifice. Starting at verse 17 of 2 Samuel chapter 24, it says, Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned, and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aaronah. The Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's, at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Arana looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arana went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arana said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you, in order to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Arana said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Aaron gives to the king. And Aaron said to the king, May the lord your God accept you. But the king said to Aaron, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the lord, my God, that cost me nothing." So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. So just some points about that text is that we can see that God has mercy on David's sin. He helped David to be able to fully repent. And then God, he shows that he is merciful in the fact that he makes a way for the plague to be stopped. And then he truly does stop the plague. So our third way that God is at work in this passage is that God is merciful in our sin. And how this applies to us is that God is a merciful God and that he does not deal with us how we deserve due to our sin. God is, a merc- God is merciful in that he allows us to repent God is merciful in that when we sin, he does not stop using us or take away our salvation. So for us today, it wasn't uh, like this back then, but for us today, we see God's mercy fully in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus hadn't come yet uh, in the time of David, but we see God's mercy lived out in Jesus Christ. So in conclusion, thinking about this passage, may our view of how God... May our view of God and how he works, even in our sin, possibly be changed or renewed. 
I'd like us to realize that God oversees our sin. He is at work in it even when we do not realize it. Secondly, realize that God fulfills his purposes through our sin. And lastly, realize that God is merciful. Surely he is a just God and punishes sin, but he is at the same time merciful and does not give us the punishment we truly deserve. So going back to the questions that I asked in the beginning, I'd like to repeat these and just think about them and think about uh, what your answer would be and think about how we have seen God at work. So firstly, have you ever sinned in such a way that you felt so guilty it was unbearable? Have you ever sinned in such a way that you felt that there was no fixing of this sin? Have you ever sinned in such a way that you felt you would never be able to stop falling into this sin? Have you ever sinned in such a way that you felt like you could not really be saved? And lastly, have you ever sinned in such a way that you felt that God could no longer use you to fulfill his purposes? Tonight, in conclusion from this text, the main thing I'd like us to just get out of it, to walk away with, is to take hope in the God who is at work in our sin, who oversees it, who fulfills his purposes in it, and who is merciful towards us in the midst of our sin. Let us pray together. Lord, I just thank you for being such a great God. I thank you for this passage as you truly are The spotlight is truly on you. And we thank you for the life of David, uh, for the example he is to us. But in this passage in specific, as he sinned, we thank you for how you were at work in it. And Lord, I thank you for the hope that we have uh, in the future, Um, maybe even the sins that we are dealing with now, Lord. I just pray that we truly would realize and possibly be reminded that you are at work, Lord, that you oversee our sin, that you fulfill your promise, purposes in it, Lord, and that you are merciful in our sin. We thank you for Jesus Christ, Lord, that you uh, sent your son to die for our sins, Lord, and only through him we can be saved, and we thank you for that. And in your name I pray, amen. You are dismissed.